Happy Sabbath, everybody. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're doing, but I pray that you are richly blessed by God's grace. I want to take this opportunity to thank Pastor Adam Randon, the NEC Youth Director, for giving me this opportunity to preach. I also want to thank um, Pastor Craig Gooden, or soon to be Pastor Craig Gooden, for, you know, being instrumental and also giving me these opportunities. I want to thank the team, Olivia Campbell. God bless you, my sister. You know, and everybody else is part of the team. God bless you. Greetings to the president and the, and the team as well. And without further ado, let's go into the word. Turn with me your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts chapter 2. That's the second chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to read verses 1 to 6. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Acts chapter 2, once more. Verses one to six. This is what the word of God says. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. And the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation and under heaven. The title of my sermon today is A Raging Fire That Burnt a Church. A Raging Fire That Burnt a Church. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, hide me behind your cross. Please forgive me for every sin that I've thought, said, and done. May you speak through me. And may every single person who hears the sound of your voice through your word be touched. In your holy name I pray. Amen. A raging fire that burnt a church. On the 15th of April, 2019, just before 1820, a structural fire broke out beneath the roof of Notre Dame de Paris, which is a cathedral located in Paris. By the time it was extinguished, the building's spiral had collapsed and most of its roof had, begun, had, had been destroyed and the upper walls were severely damaged and many of the art and religious relics had been completely ruined. Many people asked themselves, how could this have happened? How could such a beautiful building like Notre Dame have caught on fire? There were three emergency workers who were injured in the process and people gasped when they saw this beautiful constructionist building engulfed with flames. They shouted and, and screamed for people to come and help out, but nobody would. And by the time people came, it was almost too late because the damage had already been done. They shouted. They screamed, they called their friends and family to come, who were nearby to come and help them, but people were too scared to try to contest the engulfing flames. Le Notre Dame de Paris est un fou. Le Notre Dame de Paris est un fou. Le Notre Dame de Paris est un fou, they shouted, meaning the Notre Dame, the cathedral, is on fire. And they shouted and shouted, but by the time the fire brigade came, it was a little bit too late. 
The French government said, we can't have this beautiful monument in flames and we can't have this beautiful monument destroyed. So instead we need to rebuild the walls of this cathedral because this cathedral isn't just great for Paris, but people come from all other parts of the world to look at this beautiful, beautiful cathedral. And if we don't rebuild it, it itself will not hold value to our French economy. And so they started to think of ways to rebuild this building. They needed donations and they estimated it would cost over a, a billion, that's right, not a million, but a billion euros in order to fix this cathedral. They said to themselves, let's see how much money we can raise. If we raise 800 million, then that's great. Let's see what we can do. So they pledged the Better Corn family and L'Oreal gave 200 million euros. Pinot family and Artemides gave 100 million. Total SA gave 100 million. BNP Probas gave 200, sorry, gave 20 million. The Decoul family gave 20 million. AXA gave 10 million. Liv Safra gave 10 million. Baigou's family gave 10 million. Uh, uh, other French names I can't pronounce gave even more money. It seemed as though they were able to raise 880 million euros in less than a day after a simple Macron appeal. Pledges of 10 million and more came there afterwards and they were able to raise a billion euros. Mm. Now a billion euros is a whole lot of money. I wouldn't mind a million euros in my bank account. Like I'm not that fussed. And my chest isn't that high. Like a million euros, that would be great. Think of the ministry you could do if someone gave you a million euros. I mean, let's think about this. You could pay off your mortgage. A million euros, you could buy a nice car. You could probably buy a nice property back home wherever you come from. You could probably even build a church in a different country. And you could probably start a relief agency to help people in need. Am I making sense here? A, bit, a million euros goes a long way, but one billion euros was raised to fix the structural damage of the Notre, Notre Dame Cathedral. And the question that permeated in my mind was what was so special about this cathedral? You see, Notre Dame Cathedral was a treasure of the French Gothic architecture. It's one of the most famous symbols of Paris, attracting an estimated 13 million visitors and pilgrims every year. Pilgrims go to this beautiful place and they do special prayers on the steps of the Notre, Notre Dame Cathedral. They read sacred pieces of scripture, which is found in your Bible. They, 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 they kneel down and lie down on the steps and they pray and ask God for the forgiveness of their sins because as far as they're concerned, the Notre Dame Cathedral is beautiful. I remember thinking to myself, why didn't they use that money? Because during that year, there was an outbreak of Ebola. Could you imagine the good that they could have done to some of the people in different parts of Africa that were suffering from Ebola? I mean, imagine if they, if they, they sent vaccines to the De Democratic Republic of Congo where the outbreak was allegedly started. Or think about the, the millions of euros that could have been spent in helping people with food or, or rebuilding shelters or, or helping people that had damage or people that had gone through, through earthquakes or natural disasters. But instead, they spent the money building a cathedral, bricks and stones and mortar, a cathedral, a cathedral that was beautiful in opulence, but has no value for spirituality, a cathedral. Can you imagine it? I thought to myself, OK, I understand it's beautiful. But what true value does that have to human life? 
As I remember looking through this, I, I read loads of things about this beautiful building, how this beautiful building was, was something that was supposed to be a tradition for people. But I believe that there's an issue here when we spend more on the architecture of a building and less on the people that go to the building. You see, our greatest asset for spirituality isn't the building that we worship in, but are the people that go into the building to worship. You see, our greater higher being that we worship is Jesus Christ or God the Son, which is more valuable to any person than any human living being. I believe that buildings are beautiful, but what's more fantastic about buildings are the people that go into that place to worship, to sing songs of glory and praise to God, to read his word and be encouraged by the person he is, and to encourage a broken people. Because listen to this, brothers and sisters, the church is a hospital filled with broken sinners, and I am one of them, and I go to this place to worship to build a connection with you and to feel closely acquainted with God as I spend time learning about the wonderful person he is. So I'm reminded in the Bible, in the book of Acts, of a beautiful story that happened. You see, the apostles got together and the Bible makes it clear in Acts chapter two that they were all in one accord. Let me read it for you right here. So you know I'm not making this up. In Acts chapter two, verse one, it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of a fire, and it sat upon each of them. Verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, or in some versions, it says other languages, and the Spirit gave them utterance. If I jump down to verse eight, verse seven, it says, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, behold, are all of these which speak Galileans? And how hear each man his own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phygeria and Pamphylia in Egypt and other parts of Libya and Cyrene and strangers of Rome and Jews and Chrysolites and, 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 and Cretes and Arbarians. We do hear the wonderful words that are spoken to God. Let me set the scene here for your hearing. The, uh, the apostles of God are in unity. That basically means that they are arguing or bickering. There is no beef or history. There is no beef or issues. There is no foolishness that's happening within the, 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 the midst of their family groups. They are in one accord, which means they are all getting on with each other. And in particular, while they are getting on with each other, they start to speak in their language, praising God. Now, there's various parts of the Bible which speak about tongues and what tongues actually means. And let me make it clear to you, the word tongue in the original Greek in this context meant languages. You see, spiritual gifts are mentioned in Ephesians 4, in Romans 12, and in 1 Corinthians 12. These are three passages, once more for your references, the book of Ephesians chapter 4, the book of Romans chapter 12, and the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And those passages speak about the beauty of speaking in tongues. In fact, they speak about spiritual gifts, but in particular, they speak about 
one specific gift, which is the gift of tongues, is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And what happens is the apostles are together in one accord, unified, and they are praising God like I am in English. And every single person around the globe that had been in that room was hearing in their own language. Let me make this make sense. It's like me preaching in English, but you're hearing in Spanish or French or German or, or Ndebele or Shona. Right. Are you with me? Or Afrikaans or Zulu. It's like I'm preaching in English, but you're hearing in your own language and you're able to glorify God. You see, the context here is there were people in that room who wanted to glorify God too, but couldn't speak the same language. You see, the gift of tongues isn't so you can just make noise. The whole purpose of tongues is that you may glorify God and the persons around you who don't speak your language may glorify God too. If everybody in that room spoke English and everybody was speaking English, there would be no need for tongues. Let me make this make sense once more. The gift of tongues is a spiritual gift which comes from God and the whole purpose is to benefit worship for God. If everyone speaks the same language, there is no need for tongues. Tongues or the gift of languages is a gift that is given to a person so he may glorify God and others may join in. The others who join in are given the gift of interpretation, which means that they can interpret what has been said. If they speak the same language, there is no need for the gift of tongues. And some people have said, yeah, but the gift of tongues in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in verse 1 to 4, it talks about this beautiful gift. And the whole purpose of this is it's a language to God. Right. But what Paul speaks about this and he says that if you want to speak this language to God by yourself, it's better you do it at home than you cause confusion because God is not a God of confusion. I'm not here to preach about tongues, by the way. That's just a little aside. You know, you can research this when you get home in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Anyway, they're coming together and the, the apostles are speaking in, in, in this beautiful language and they're, they're, they're all in one accord. Let me make this make sense. I did some research and I asked myself the question, why did they need to be in one accord? And what was the beauty and the value of Pentecost? Let me break this down for you. Pentecost was a Jewish feast day. The Jewish community had numerous feasts. They had three main feasts which they kept around the same kind of time, which was around Easter. One of them specifically was the beautiful Pentecost feast. Let me make this make sense. The Jewish called this the Feast of Harvest or the Festival of Weeks. Some have said that they believed it occurred on a Sunday. The word Pentecost root word came from penta, meaning five or 50, for example. The Pentagon has five sides. Now, after Passover, there, there are seven weeks. And after the last Passover Sabbath, which was on the 49th day, comes the day of Pentecost on the fifth day. The Jews didn't call it the day of Pentecost. They called it a, a, a Jewish feast or a, of a Jewish harvest or the feast of weeks because they knew that it was something special that, was, that would happen after this beautiful Easter period. The, the, the Romans later changed it or the Greeks later changed the, the, the word to the uh, Pentecost day, meaning a day that came after 50 days. Let me make this make sense to you right here. Jesus died during Easter time. 
And there was this beautiful celebration that happened after the death of Jesus. Many Christians believe that the, the risen day of Jesus, which would have been on a Sunday, was so holy and so significant that it should be a day of corporate worship. Am I making sense here? Nowhere in the Bible do we see us celebrating the day Jesus rose. In the Bible, we don't even celebrate the day Jesus was born. We don't celebrate the day Jesus turned 13, which was known as the bar mitzvah, the day when Jesus would, be would turn into a man or become a man. We don't celebrate the day that Jesus went to the cross. We call it Easter, but, but we don't uh, glorify that day. We glorify who Jesus is as a person. Do you know why? Because Jesus never wanted us to get caught up with days. Don't get me wrong. It's okay if you want to celebrate Christmas with your family or you want to celebrate Easter and slice your Easter bun or have a piece of chocolate. It's okay if you want to do those things because it's nice for family members to get together. But Jesus never expected us to worship him or to glorify him as a holy day on the day he was risen, which was a Sunday, but always expected us to keep the Sabbath. That was a feast and a specific holiday that the Jews kept and they still keep to this day. And we as Seventh-day Adventists keep this day also because we believe that it's the hallmark or the seal of God. And it represents not just us as Seventh-day Adventists, but us as a faith-based community that wants to keep this one special day holy. The reason why we do this is because we recognize that going to church on a Saturday won't save you. We recognize and acknowledge that going to church on Sabbath will not fast track you to the gates or the kingdom of heaven, but having an attitude of worship and keeping the commandments of God is something which holds God in high esteem in our lives. And so my question is, brothers and sisters, how have you been coping without going to church? You know, church is closed around mid-March. I'm a pastor and it's hard for me. I mean, don't get me wrong, I really enjoy my family time, but I miss worshiping with brothers and sisters. I miss going into church. I miss being in one accord with people. I miss those things. Because when I became a pastor, I, I came into the ministry because I desired to minister to serve God. But over time, I've realized that my ministry will not just be pigeonholed, pigeonholed to a church building. Ministry is not just about going to church on a Sabbath, but ministry is about how I connect with God throughout the week and my culmination of my celebration should take place on a Sabbath. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all of this because there's one thing I glossed over in the story, and that's that the apostles were all in one accord. Being in one accord is so hard because can I be really honest with you? Like, really, really honest, don't judge me. But I love church, but I find it difficult to love all the people in a church. Like, I'm a pastor, and I'm going to keep it 100% authentic with you. I love church, I love God, but I find it hard to love all the people in church. I'm expected to love all the people in church. But in church, you have some hypocrites, man, that want to blacken your name. In church, you have some people that want to mash up your marriage. In church, you have some people that will criticize your parenting. In church, you have some people that want to tell you that a colonial form of worship is the closest to heavenly worship and anything other than European classical music is sinful within the constructs of church. Some people would tell you that that style of worship is not befitting of a Christian and neither should be used in church. And many people get upset because they just want to glorify God within their cultural sphere. 
I find it hard because church is filled with so many cultural fractions. You have people from different parts of the world that want to do infighting because they're unhappy with the fact that you from a specific culture want to worship God your way and they expect to worship God their way because they see this as closest to what God expects. You see, church can be hard sometimes, and sometimes I find it difficult when I sit down and I, I hear the long services and the announcements that seem to go on for ages, and I preach my sermon, and when I finish preaching my sermon, someone wants to talk about the items to put on the agenda for the next board meeting, and, and as soon as sunset comes, we have business meeting or board meeting, and sometimes, brothers and sisters, I find it hard because I just want to go to church and worship my Jesus, but when I go to church, we do this thing called worship, when instead it's not really worship. It's just maintaining the four walls of the building and following a process that's been passed down from generations to generation. I find it hard sometimes, brothers and sisters, because we're expected to look a certain way when we go to church and dress a certain way. And if we don't fall into the into the into what's expected and meet the status quo, there is a problem. I find it hard sometimes, brothers and sisters. Because when it comes to potluck lunch, we all are supposed to be in one accord and enjoying each other's company. But sometimes you get upset with the person because they made your signature dish and they did it better than yours and it tastes a hundred times nicer. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we really struggle because as soon as we get into church, it's about a process. And it's about meeting the needs of what's expected rather than meeting the needs of worship to God. Like, let's be honest, sometimes we spend so little time in prayer and so little time in praise and worship that we actually forget while we're in church. We go to church and we hear a lengthy sermon. We hear a 10-minute spot. We hear a Sabbath school lesson. We have an AY program. And we're great with doing these wonderful presentations because you know what, brothers and sisters? They are great. They are wonderful and they are enriching. But when it comes to worshiping God in music, putting our hands in the air. We're scared to do so in case someone thinks we're a Pentecostal. But it's okay to raise your hands and worship God because when you think about where he's taken you and you think about the fact that you're alive today, you have to glorify God. I'm not criticizing the church. On the contrary, I'm just expressing to you some of the concerns I have because I love church and I love people, but I find it hard to love everybody all at the same time because we all are humans with our issues. Church is a wonderful place, but it's also a place filled with broken people. And some of those broken people are horrible to you and may treat you like trash, but God still wants you to reach them. Why? Because if you want the power of the Holy Spirit to rain down on you, you need to be in one accord with those people. Now that doesn't mean you're best friends of everybody. But it means that you meet on a common ground, and that common ground is the service of Jesus Christ. Let me make this make sense. All of the apostles weren't best friends. All of the disciples weren't best friends. All of our pilgrim fathers weren't best friends. But they met on a common ground, and that was worship for God. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, you don't have to get on with every single person in church. You don't even have to have them as your best friend. But try your best to be in one accord with them spiritually so that the Holy Spirit can rain down on you and you can do unimaginable things to transform this beautiful, worshipful experience with God. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because we've been through a lot of foolishness over the years 2019 and 2020. 
We've been through so much stuff over the past few years that it's been so hard for people to actually formulate a close relationship with God. Many people have left church. And I'm not just talking about the building, I'm talking about the experience. And the reason they've left church is because they don't feel the connection anymore. Some of them have lost their way because of COVID-19 and they felt that God doesn't care about them anymore. Some of them have turned their backs on church and the church experience and even the Zoom platforms because they're upset with the people who are running these platforms. Some of these people don't want to worship God anymore because they feel as though God has taken away a loved one due to COVID-19 and they find it hard to serve and worship him. Well, let me tell you something to encourage you. This has been a hard year, but the year's not over yet. Many people have marched for Black Lives Matter. Many people have, have protested against being made redundant. Many people had suffered abuse during this time, both domestic, sexual, and even spiritual abuse. Many have gone into depression due to feeling isolated. Many have felt rejected and alone during this time. Many people have felt like giving up. Many people have, have graciously accepted the furlough because it's been wonderful and they haven't had to go back to work. Many have generously accepted lockdown as a means for family time. Many have used this time to connect with their family and also with God. And many have also prepared themselves during this time to meet Jesus, but there still are people who are silent with the groanings of society. You see, if our church is to have value, then we have to meet the needs of society and to connect with people in society who equally are hurting. Coronavirus to date has claimed the life of, of 46,000 people in the UK. 46,000 lives have been lost due to COVID-19. I'm not here to get into conspiracy theories about whether it was made in a lab or a natural thing from eating bats. Personally, I don't think coronavirus came from eating bats. I mean, listen, people been eating bats for years. According to Leviticus 11, it's unclean, you're not supposed to eat it. But I do believe people have been eating bats for years. There's never been no COVID-19. I personally think it was created in a lab, but I'm not really gonna get into no conspiracy theories today. Do your own research. But notwithstanding, 46,000 people have lost their lives. Let me carry on. In the US, United States of America, 156,000 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. Like, how can we really not talk about this? Like, we want to preach about love, joy, and happiness, but not preach about COVID-19? Like, let's not miss the point here. Preach about love, joy, and happiness with COVID-19, because COVID-19 is real and is affecting lives. Let me carry on. The world has had 17.6 million cases of COVID-19. One more time, 17.6 million cases of COVID-19. There have been 679,000 reported deaths. One more time, 679,000 reported deaths to COVID-19. That doesn't mean that they're not anymore. I'm just talking about those that have been reported. Sometimes for coroner's reports, it's been difficult to establish the cause of death. They haven't been 100% sure. Sometimes it could have been COVID-19. Let me carry on. Now the common flu in the United Kingdom claims the lives of 10,000 people per year. And we never preach about the flu. Well, I can't talk about you. I don't know what you preach about. But I haven't really preached about the common flu much. Maybe once or twice, but not often. 
Like in the winter months, I don't preach about preparing yourself or taking natural remedies or, or, or self-isolating if you are elderly because the common flu could claim 10,000 lives. You know what, brothers and sisters? I've kind of become desensitized. Like really I have. Like you hear about Ebola and SARS and, and Zika virus and, and swine flu and bird flu and, and, and coronavirus. And in a few years time, many people will be desensitized to it. Because the reality is, if it doesn't affect you and your family, it's hard for you to care sometimes. And it's not because you're a harsh person. It's just that you've got things to do with, to deal with in life that sometimes prioritize your time and prioritize your mind. And so when we think about 10,000 people dying from the common flu, if it doesn't affect us or a loved one, it's easy for us to gloss over and just take your lemsip and your honey and lemon and ginger and garlic and black cayenne pepper and, 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 and your natural remedies and stuff and hope for a better life. But the truth is 10,000 people die a year due to the common flu. Man, we live in worrying times. There have been tens of, con of, of th there have been tens of conflicts that have happened in 2019. There have been loads of problems that have happened in Mexico. There's been a high rise of, of, the, of the drug cartel and criminal market developing in loads and loads of deaths. The Sahel has caused loads and loads of, of, of conflicts that have arisen due to infecting neighbors in Yemen. There has been a high risk of, of persistent conflicts amidst shifting front lines and alliances. In India, at the risk of the Maldives plans derailing with uncontrollable effects, there have been loads of people who have lost their lives. In Somalia, there has been a high risk of the Al-Shabaab adapting to, the, to dominate and isolate the weak government. In Iran, there has been a high risk of the center deteriorating amidst the regime of escalation to problems that have happened at home and also abroad. In Afghanistan, there has been a high rising of, of, of violence and targeting, and they have targeted specifically civilians. In Ethiopia, there has been a risk of increased fragmentation despite a popular leader. In Lebanon, there has been a high risk of protest developing into organizational violence. In the United States, there has been developing problems with the democratic democratic political system, which has been at risk of turning violent, especially with issues surrounding Black Lives Matter. Am I making sense so far? Issues with Democrats, issues with Republicans, issues with all of the people who have died. Let me give you a quick list. There have been loads of Black people who have lost their lives so far over the past couple of years. You've had George Floyd, as you know about, who died under police brutality with a police officer's a knee on his neck. You had Breonna Taylor, who was shot eight times in plain clothes by plain clothes police officers who broke into her, her house. You had Atiana Jefferson, who was shot through a window while sitting in the sofa in her own house. You had Aurora Russia, who was tasered and then shot and called her boyfriend, who, who listen to this one. Aurora Russia was tasered and shot. This is a woman, tasered and shot. Her boyfriend and her had an argument and the boyfriend decided to call the police to kind of de-escalate the situation because they were expected to serve and protect. And during the time they saw this woman carrying an irate, they tasered her, she carried on, shot her, killed her. This is what happened, like seriously. Another one, Stephen Clark was shot more than 20 times. The police thought he had a gun, but he was standing in his grandma's garden with his mobile phone in his hand. Guys, listen, how does this 
You see this right here? How does this look like a gun? I'm holding an iPhone 10. How does this look like a gun? Police saw this young guy standing in his grandma's garden. The neighbors basically alerted the authorities. And they basically said that, that, that this person here has a gun in their hand, you need to come. The police didn't talk to him nicely. They didn't ask him what he had in his hand, but shot him 20 times. Like, how does someone need to be shot 20 times? Like, come on. We're living in a time now of the last days where the love of men will wax cold. Like, people don't care about life anymore. It's easy for them to take it. You had her Freddie Gray, who was beaten to death by police. You had her uh, Philando Castell shot by cops. Alton Sterling shot by cops. Michelle um, Cousseau shot by cops. You had Bethany Jean. Now, this is the one I don't want you to forget. I need to take my time with this. We're talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit right now. Being in one accord with God. Bethany Jean was shot on his sofa eating ice cream. Police thought it was an intruder in her house. A complete mistake as he was in his own house. Amber Guy was given a 10 year prison sentence, which was the minimum sentence. You know, the maximum sentence that she could have been given. Now, let me make this make sense. Amber, Amber Guy was a police officer. And Amber Gaia broke into this house, literally kicked down the door and broke into this house because she thought that her own house had been burgled and she thought that the person who had broken into her house was sitting on her sofa. Does this make sense to you? Like, seriously, someone breaks into your house and as you look through the window, you see them sitting on the sofa eating ice cream. But anyway, she bursts into the house, kicks the door down, bursts into the house, she's a cop, and she opens fire, bap, 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 shoots the guy to pieces. The guy happens to die. It's only after, when she looks around the house, that she realizes that she doesn't recognize the pictures on the wall. It's only after when she looks around the house and sees the ornaments that she realizes it's not her home. It's only after she looks at the color of the flooring and the decor of the wall that she realizes it's not her home. She looks around and she spins around and she turns around and she looks and she thinks to herself, oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong place because she recognizes that it's not her house. When the police arrest her, she's a cop and they ask her why she did these things. She says, I'm really sorry. I thought that he had broken into my house and was sitting on my sofa, yet that man lied lifeless. Where was the justice? Now the maximum penalty for this was 99 years. Can I be honest with you? If this was my brother, if this was one of my brothers and a cop burst into the house, shot that person eating ice cream on their sofa, I'm gonna be saying to the judge, in time, I can go through the process of healing and forgiveness. But I want that person to go to prison for the maximum sentence. Because I want that person for the rest of their life to recognize that what they did was callous and foolish. And that person isn't just a danger to themselves, but is also a danger to other people. Are you hearing me? That person who shot that innocent person is not just a danger to themselves, but also a danger to other people. Therefore, they need to be locked away and they maybe need psych evaluation. But it, it seemed as though that cop didn't have any psychological problems. So as far as I'm concerned, enjoy your 99 years. But this is what really blew my heart, my mind. 
during the court case, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. But Bothany Jean's brother pleaded for her. And he went up to Amber and he embraced Amber and said to Amber, I forgive you. I don't think you're hearing me. And it's okay if you need to research this yourself. He went up to Amber. He hugged Amber. Amber, the person who had shot her brother. Amber, the person who had pled and said it was a mistake and I'm sorry. Amber, who hadn't even asked questions. Amber, who shot the man eating ice cream. Amber, who took away the boy's brother. Amber, he went to her and he embraced her, hugged her, held her in his arms and said, it's okay, I forgive you. Because he realized something. He realized that forgiveness doesn't just set her free, but sets him free. If he couldn't forgive her, he would have been holding the guilt and the pain and the misery for the rest of his life. But he let it go because he realized that there is more to life than holding anger in your heart. Brothers and sisters, you're not hearing me today. But I want you to know that some of us are going to church and we're not in one accord. We're worshiping God our way, but we hate our brother. The reason why we're not feeling the Holy Spirit rain down in our churches and in our lives is because sometimes maybe there's a focus in our hearts and in our minds on, on, on corporate worship rather than individual worship. Maybe there's a problem that's in our heart which focuses more on what we do as an effect rather than the effect Jesus has on our lives. If I want to be in one accord with you, I have to forgive you when you've wronged me. I have to find a way to go through this process of healing. I have to find a way of letting bygones be bygones. I have to find a way of letting my relationship with Jesus grow so that we can prepare people to meet him. Because I recognize, brothers and sisters, that we are living in the last days and the love of men will wax cold before Jesus comes. And I so badly want to get to heaven. You're not hearing me. I so badly need to get to heaven. My life isn't perfect. I've messed up and made stupid mistakes, but I really want to get to heaven because if I can't see Jesus face to face, all of this would have been a waste of time. The preaching, the teaching, the singing, the baptisms, the weddings, the funerals, the counseling, all a waste of time if Micah Campbell doesn't make it to the promised land. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus wants to save you and he wants you to get into the kingdom of heaven. But before you can, you need to be in one accord with your brothers and sisters. I read an article. I read an article that upset me. I felt the need to put it into this message because I felt the need to share it. I spoke at the beginning about Notre Dame, the French cathedral being on fire, and then raising a billion euros, and 880,000 or something like that was raised in 24 hours. You remember this? No, that was a mistake. It was like 800 million. Yeah, had been raised in 24 hours. I read an article in the paper, which I sent to some of my friends. And the article blew my mind. And I want to tell you why. We live in a time right now where we can't have corporate worship. Do you know why? Because of the coronavirus. But you can go into a pub. You can go into a bar. 
You can go to your, some amusements are going to be open in two weeks time. And you can do these things and you can rub shoulders with the person beside you because Boris is lessening the range. At first, it was two meters. Now it's one meter. Now they're saying, keep a safe distance, whatever, does, whatever, does, whatever that means. But you can't go to church. Do you know why? Because in church, we have loads of people who are immunocompromised. We have loads of elderly people and we don't want to put their lives at risk. So we're telling them to stay at home, which is wise. But the thing that annoys me is at the beginning of this year, a French group of evangelicals met up and they decided to have their version of camp meeting, which was a five, it was a five day worshipful experience. And they were singing and praising God and enjoying themselves. And during this worshipful experience, they felt like the Holy Spirit was in that place because they were in one accord. But shortly after, now this happened around February, shortly after what happened, listen to this carefully, I think it was in January, February, something like that. Shortly after, there were 17 confirmed deaths from the coronavirus. So what happened? The French government blamed the church. They blamed the evangelical worshipful experience because as far as they were concerned, they could trace it back to that pinpointed event. And that's when those 17 people contracted coronavirus and died. I'm here to say, I don't know how true that is. Do you want me to tell you why? Because coronavirus didn't come about then. Coronavirus apparently hit the UK in December. That's what stats have said. Am I making sense here? March, the middle of March is where we close things down. That's when we went into isolation, but coronavirus apparently was around before then. And it's really difficult to establish cause and effect with coronavirus. I mean, some people have said, listen, man, you can get coronavirus from going to church or from, or from that experience in Paris. That's where it started from. Others have said those people could have contracted the virus from their places of work. Could have, correct, could have contracted it from their local postman or postwoman, could have contracted it from buying a product from their local Tesco's or supermarket, could have contracted the virus from, from filling up gas or petrol or diesel in the, local, in the local petrol station or gas stations. They could have contracted it in numerous different ways, but they blamed the church because it's so easy to make the church a scapegoat when it seems to be doing something which is seen to be obscure. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if it was from that worshipful experience. I am saying that we need to be careful and going back to worship right now isn't safe. I get it. But what I'm also saying is don't be surprised if when church does reopen and you go back, they blame the church. Don't be surprised if when churches do open, they blame Worcester, Redditch or Tamworth or, or Hansworth or, or Aston Newtown or Windsor Street or, or one of the churches in Birmingham. Don't be surprised when they start to blame your churches for causing the coronavirus because it's easy to make church a scapegoat. You see, what upset me is when the church was on fire. Oh, you're not hearing me. When the church was on fire, people were rushing, fire brigades, the fire brigade went to the Notre Dame Cathedral. They were looking to put the fire out. They raised a billion euros. They were so excited about restoring a building. But when it came and when it comes to the church being on fire for Jesus as an issue, let me make this make sense. We're living in the last days and it's only a matter of time before they start saying to you guys, we can't worship on Sabbath. We can't worship in church buildings. We can't praise him. They've already said you can't sing. You can't even sing with a face shielder. You can't worship God. Next, they're gonna say you can't preach because if you preach and get too excited and start sweating like I am, or you spit when you preach, then there's a problem, can't preach. Soon they're gonna say you can't worship. They've already said no potluck lunches. I bet you any money, mark my words, when churches do reopen, 
we're going to get persecuted because they're going to have an issue with us worshiping Jesus because they know he's coming soon. Let me make this make sense to you, brothers and sisters. I'm not here to preach about speaking in tongues. I'm here to preach about your relationship with God. Don't spend time invested in buildings. Spend time investing in Jesus. Like, by all means, if you want to build a beautiful building and a structure for the purpose of the community, go ahead. But what's more important and more valuable is that you spend time with Jesus. Know him for yourself and be in one accord because I promise you, Jesus is coming again soon. And my question is, will you be ready? Well, we've seen the signs. We've seen the signs in the Bible. We've seen the experiences, but will you be ready? Many people have marched for Black Lives Matter. I read a whole list of black people who have died at the hands of police brutality, but will you be ready? I spoke about different parts of the world where there are wars and people dying, but will you be ready? I spoke about churches closing down. I spoke about France, then raising money, a billion euros to build Notre Dame, but, but, but shutting down a worshipful service and, and getting upset and blaming and scapegoating the church for having their worshipful experience. But will you be ready? Will you be ready when churches reopen? And when you can go into your glossy, like glossy clean buildings that have been whitewashed and cleaned, will you be ready when the government say no singing and you start singing? Will you be ready when the government say there's too many people in your church and you have to leave? Will you be ready when they start persecuting you for worshiping on Saturday and say that's not the correct day, the correct worship day should be Sunday? Will you be ready? when it becomes so hard to worship because I believe worshiping in home and on Zoom is preparation for the end. You're not hearing me. The Waldanzis, a group of people before, many years ago, would worship in caves and they did this because they were being persecuted. One day you will be persecuted for your belief, but will you be ready? Will you be ready when they try to take away your faith? Will So you've heard the sermon. And you want to say, Lord, I want to be ready. I really want to be ready. It's not about the building anymore. It's about you. I want to be ready, Jesus. I want to get to heaven. I want to forgive. I want to let bygones be bygones. I want to move on with people. I want to see you, Jesus. I want to get a spiritual gift. I want, to, I want your spirit to rain down on me. I want to be in one accord. I want there to be no issues with people I have problems with. If you feel this way, just where you are, raise your hand. I don't know where you are. Just raise your hand with me. Raise your hand. I can't see, but the Holy Spirit can see. God can see. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Dear Jesus, we need to be in one accord. We need forgiveness for all of our sins. We need to feel as though you are coming again soon. Many of us have become complacent. We've heard about the deaths. We've heard about rumors of war. We've heard about war and pestilence. We've heard about infections. We've heard about diseases. We've heard about churches closing. We've heard about social distancing, but something within us is not quite right. And Jesus, I don't want myself or anybody else to miss out on salvation. So Jesus, forgive us for our sins. Speak to our hearts and help us, Lord, to know that you are coming again soon to save a group of people who love you, but most of all, who need you in their lives. So forgive us for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing this prayer.
We love you so much. Help us to be on fire for you, Jesus. In your name we pray.